Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. Hope you're doing well. I'm tired of the rain. <laughs> the phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 if you want to join in. Well, the coronavirus situation continues to spread. The The Dow Jones Industrial yesterday just uh, down 1,031 points, wiping out all the yearly gains, uh, all this year's gains. Not a not a good setup. And they're, they're concerned, of course, um, this morning, although there are some indications stocks may rebound uh, when markets open. We will see. Uh, right now around the state, mostly in the 50s, Except in northeast Georgia, it's in the upper 40s. Um, we largely are without rain right now, except, of course, at my house in Macon. It is raining right now, um, and that sucks. But it'll it'll at least get up. But, you know, we've got this trend where it's raining and it's kind of warm and muggy, and then the clouds go away and suddenly it's freezing cold and we're all sick, and then we all think we've got the coronavirus. Um, we'll spend more time on the coronavirus, but... There's a lot of stuff happening today, and I need to give you a heads up. At the bottom of this hour, uh, I am going to interview a man named Mike Pless. Uh, there is a situation, it's happening in Lake Juliet. Uh, if you're familiar with Middle Georgia, uh, Georgia Power has a coal-burning power plant down there, Plant Shearer. And Georgia Power, in a number of places around the state, not just Plant Shearer, uh, leaves its coal ash in uncovered, unlined ponds. And people are finding hexavalent chromium in their water supply in their wells now, and, and they're they're they say it's Georgia Power because the there are no linings. Georgia Power says that limits are far below what the EPA says, uh, and that it might be naturally occurring. And there's been a back and forth. There's legislation uh, involved now in the state legislature. This has completely thrown the state legislative session for a loop. They weren't expecting to have to deal with this issue, and suddenly they are. And I want to spend some time. I want to talk to Mike Pless. Uh, we've reached out to Georgia Power to get someone from Georgia Power to come on and talk about it. Uh, so stick around for that. Right now, though, I want to get into the uh, into the Democratic campaign uh, to some degree. David Perdue, the senator from Georgia, was on Fox News and had this to say about Bernie Sanders being the Democratic nominee. Well, we have every opportunity to get the House back. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a gift to the Republican Party and the, the economic uh, turnaround that President Trump is executing right now. Look, we have the greatest contrast that America has ever had, I think, between two potential presidents here. Uh, on the one hand, you've got uh, Donald Trump, who is executing the greatest economic turnaround in U.S. history. On the other hand, you've got Bernie Sanders, who's lived off somebody else his entire life, promising free stuff. Promising free stuff to everyone. Yes. Um, and Bernie Sanders has been in government for a while doing this, and it's starting to come back and bite him. For example, he had a town hall with CNN last night, and, and he can't help but flub some things he shouldn't flub, and Democrats are a little bit concerned with it. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Bernie's support overwhelmingly comes from college-age kids who were not alive in the 80s and early 90s with the fall of the Soviet Union. They have no recollection of the Cold War because they were born after it. And, and those who have any recollection at all of the Cold War are uh, put off by Bernie Sanders, frankly. Um, they're the, in fact, it shows that the older voters have real concerns with Sanders' positions on these things. Older voters tend to vote in larger numbers than younger voters. That That's problematic for the Democrats. Here's Bernie defending his position on Cuba, 
Congress who represent Cuban Americans in Florida. Uh, you, obviously, you got to win there. They're attacking your comment as absolutely unacceptable, singing the praises of a murderous tyrant. Response. The response was when Fidel Castro first came to power, which was when? 59? Is that sound right? 59, 60. Okay. You know what he did? He initiated a major literacy program. There was a lot of uh, a lot of folks in Cuba at that point who are literate. And he formed the Literacy Brigade. You may read that. They went out and they helped people learn to read and write. He helped people learn to read and write. Y'all, I, I, do we really need to, to do it? By the way, I, I do have to say there is some real irony here that the media uh, offered glowing praise to Barack Obama wanting to resume uh, relations with Cuba and the nice things that Obama said about Castro. I mean, you may not remember this, but just a couple of years ago, Barack Obama wanted to start trading with Cuba, said we had done it so long one way. It was now trying to do something new and look at all the good that the Castro brothers had actually done in Cuba and the media praised him. But now suddenly Bernie Sanders said it is, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we can't do this. And then Bernie did something else audacious. He defended China. Including Nicaragua, including Saudi Arabia, including China, including Russia. I happen to believe in democracy, not authoritarianism. But, you know, you can't say China is another example. All right. China is an authoritarian country becoming more and more authoritarian. But can anyone deny I mean, the facts are clear that they have taken more people out of extreme poverty than any country in history. Um, they've taken more people out of poverty. How about it was the Americans sending so much of our manufacturing to China, iPhones and the like, that it's actually us who helped elevate the Chinese out of poverty. You know, it was actually um, what uh, Ding Jinping, I think his name was, um, who decided that they needed to embrace uh, a fusionist model in China of Western capitalism um, overseen by the Communist Party. So they've embraced aspects of capitalism to elevate people out of out of poverty uh, by rejecting some of the, the Mao Zedong uh, cultural revolution aspects of communism, the Stalinist components they rejected. But Bernie's not going to see this. Y'all, here's the thing. And, and this is what, what I'm so amazed by. In November, if Bernie is the nominee, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this, if Bernie Sanders is that, well, I mean, for that matter, if if Mike Bloomberg is the nominee, but but Bernie possibly, and I want to explain my thinking on this, millions of Americans are going to vote for a man they hate to stop a man they loathe. And I mean that on both sides. You're going to have a bunch of Democrats who hate Bernie Sanders who will vote for him to stop Donald Trump. And you have a bunch of Republicans who hate Donald Trump who will vote for him to stop Bernie Sanders. In fact, I know a lot of people who, like me, did not vote for Donald Trump in 2016 who will crawl over broken glass for the man in 2020 to stop Bernie Sanders. And I, I actually know fewer Democrats who already, I mean, in most of the Democrats, I know they're going to vote for whoever the Democrat is. They hate Trump so bad. It's the people who sat on the sidelines in 2016. 
those people are a problem for the Democrats because they couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary or vote for uh, Donald Trump. And here comes Bernie Sanders. You got four years of Donald Trump. He's really not that bad. Uh, He's done some very good things. Uh, He's deregulated. He's done great on judges. Uh, He passed tax cuts. He has has been um, better in foreign policy than a lot of people expected him to be. And so he's no longer the hypothetical that he was in 2016. And in no longer being the hypothetical he was in 2016, he actually, uh, he's, he's done good work. And Bernie Sanders is a man who for 40 years has advocated uh, socialist communist policies. Let me, let me read you what I wrote in, in February of 2016. This is me writing February 22nd, 2016. Uh, when I wrote in National Review that I was against Donald Trump, I said I, had, I have maintained since his entry into the race that if Donald Trump is a Republican nominee, I would support him. No longer. Donald Trump believes the federal government should fund Planned Parenthood. Donald Trump believes there is a good, there are good things that the child killers do. What is more damning is how so many who are, are willing to be compromised by Donald Trump. For eight years, the conservative movement compromised itself as a wing of George W. Bush's Republican Party. The movement became ill-defined and conservative became a synonym with Republican. Already, we're seeing pastors and religious leaders compromise their integrity to vote for Donald Trump. Jerry Falwell Jr. has joined the horrors of Moloch, defending Trump's Planned Parenthood statement on Twitter. Falwell presides over an institution that expels students who have abortions, but is willing to give positive lip service to Trump, saying there are good things Planned Parenthood does. If Donald Trump were elected president, there would be members of the pro-life movement who would compromise their convictions for access to power. If Trump were elected, portions of the conservative movement would compromise the movement to be one degree from Donald Trump. The intellectual institutions on which we made our case for limited government and freedom would crumble. And on top of it all, the oligarchs would do just fine. They would coddle and humor President Trump, a man of mountainous ego, and get their way while the very people Donald Trump promises to help would get table scraps. You know, some of that's true. There are conservative institutions who are suddenly full-throated for tariffs after years of saying they were bad. There are conservative institutions who no longer care about the size and scope of the federal government uh, because they're in charge of it. There are religious leaders who will defend anything the president does. But, you know, my big concerns were that the president wouldn't would actually compromise on life with Planned Parenthood. My big concerns were that Donald Trump really was a pro-abortion liberal who, once he got in office, would be a pro-abortion liberal and would have pro-lifers actually say, oh, no, he's actually doing some good stuff. No, it turns out I was wrong on that. I was wrong. Thankfully, I was wrong. He got elected and he's been great on life. He's been great on these issues. Donald Trump is not the hypothetical now he was in 2016, but neither is Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has been consistent for 40 years. Bernie Sanders has been defending communists for 40 years. Bernie Sanders has been defending communist dictatorships for 40 years. Bernie Sanders has been writing all all this crazy stuff for 40 years. He's been as consistent as in office Donald Trump has. So I got to tell you, There are a number of people out there who call themselves conservatives and say they're going to save the conservative movement by voting for Bernie Sanders. I think if you're voting for Bernie Sanders, full stop, you cannot call yourself a conservative. I think you can look at both sides and say, no, character still counts. I still firmly believe character matters. I cannot vote for Donald Trump. I'm not voting for Bernie Sanders. I'm just not going to go vote. I think that's a reasonable position. I disagree with you, but I think it's reasonable. I think it is insane. And by the way, I agreed with that position in 2016. I voted third party in 2016. But, you know, I said character counts in 2016. I'm not going to vote for either of these guys. And over 100 million Americans disagreed with me. 
Now, I can still maintain character counts and, and sit on the sidelines because I do have problems with the president's character. Uh, but I think that the president has done enough good that he has earned my vote. Uh, he stood by Brett Kavanaugh when almost any other Republican would have bailed on him. He got Neil Gorsuch on the bench. Yes, uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are actually big. Ka- him see- doing the fight on Kavanaugh and being willing to shut down the government to fight for border wall funding mattered to me. That he was willing to pick fights to advance his agenda, and I appreciated that. I didn't think he would. Tax cuts were another big issue for me. Withdrawal from the Paris Accord, having the guts to move the embassy to Jerusalem when everyone told him that he couldn't move the embassy to Jerusalem because war would break out. He did it, and look what happened. He was proven right, and war did not break out. All of these things amount to Donald Trump has done a lot more than I ever expected and a lot better than I expected, and he's absolutely earned my vote in 2020. I understand people look at his behavior, and they say, I just no character counts, and he's a bad role model. I can't go vote for him. I understand that. That was my position in 2016. And I still feel that way, but I also feel like uh, 100 million Americans disagreed with me and decided I got to vote Republican or Democrat. I'm not going to go third party again. I did in 2016, and that guy's an idiot. Uh, I'm not going to sit home. It's not my nature to sit home. So the issue is between two parties, the Democrat and Republican, who do I vote for? The guy who I have character problems with, but whose policies I like, or the guy whose character I have problems with, whose policies I hate? Because they're all sinners. They all fall short of the glory of God. The problem is Trump mean tweets and people don't like the tweets. And so they say, oh, he's a bad guy. I'm going to go with Bernie Sanders. He doesn't mean tweet. Yes, but Bernie Sanders likes communists and killing kids. And that's not hyperbole. He's totally down with the abortion agenda. He's totally down with supporting communism. You know, I tell people now all the time. They say the president, the president's character grosses me out. Yeah, you know, listen. The man has cheated on multiple wives, including with porn stars, including having an affair while his wife was pregnant. I I don't like that at all. He is not a role model. I long for the days we had a president we could point to and say, be like that guy. But we're not there. And the choice is Democrat or Republican at this point. And I'm going to go Republican. I'm not going to sit it out this time. I have long ago stopped saying that this is the most important election in our lifetime because everybody says that every four years. Oh, my gosh, this year. No, no, seriously, this year, this is the most important election. I don't care whether you think it's the most important election or not. What I know is that in 2016, I said character counted and I voted third party because I believed it and a hundred some odd million Americans disagreed with me. And the guy I thought couldn't get elected wound up getting elected. And now he's president and he's way better than I ever thought he would be. He's done a lot more good than I ever thought, way more than the bad that he's done, way more than the things I disagreed with. There were plenty of things with George W. Bush I disagreed with as well. And I voted for George W. Bush in reelection. If I can disagree with Donald Trump on a handful of things, just like I disagreed with George W. Bush and I voted for Bush for reelection, I can vote for Trump for reelection. And given that Trump looks like he's going to be running against a 40-year communist apologist who wrote rape fantasies in the 70s and 80s, I think I'll be fine voting for Donald Trump, despite all the media bullying trying to tell everybody that if you vote for Trump, you're a terrible person. Ah, no, I'm not voting for the guy who wrote rape fantasy, supports killing kids, and apologizes for communists. I, You know, I, I got to tell you, um, a buddy of mine tuned in or late and he says what what set you off on this i've been thinking about this and i see people like joe walsh uh who, who's just I, I consider him a grifter uh he was a tea party congressman who uh w- was all about humping trump's leg until he wasn't and now he wanted to run against the president and now he's out there saying that that to save conservatism you got to vote for the socialist to stop the populist no sit it listen it, it, i understand people deciding to sit it out i i actually do i may disagree with them 
but I understand it. You, you hate them all. You know, it, there's actually for all of the the Democratic I, I've mentioned before that it, between 2016 and 2018, Democrats in Georgia registered 980,000 people to vote. Let me say that again. Between 2016 and 2018, between Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams, Democrats registered 980,000 people to vote in Georgia. Less than 100,000 of those people who registered to vote actually turned up and voted in 2018. Uh, Abrams was only able to improve uh, over Hillary Clinton's margins by about 40,000 votes. Now, that is significant because in off-year elections, typically uh, the the vote is less. uh, But Abrams improved over Hillary, which is actually an indication of just how bad a candidate Hillary Clinton was even here in Georgia. But of the of the much much touted nine hundred eighty thousand people who registered to vote, less than a hundred thousand of those people registered actually turned out. The Atlanta Journal Constitution actually went out and found a lot of those people who were registered to vote and then didn't show up. They they took the time to register to vote, but they didn't actually go vote. Why? And and the AJC Atlanta Journal Constitution wanted to do some interviews with those people. And what they found is that most a lot of them one didn't know they were registering to vote or they they went through a process that registered them automatically. Like for example, when you go get your driver's license, you get registered to vote under the motor voter bill. But these people have no intention of voting. Many of them hate all sides. They're like, it's all gross. I want nothing to do with it. I'm not going to go vote. Just leave me alone. And that's an understandable sentiment. You know, I'm actually, there are countries in the world, uh, Australia, I believe is, I know Belgium for certain is, where you get punished by the government if you don't go vote. You actually get punished by the government. Now, I actually have a friend in Belgium who, because he doesn't want to get fined by the government for not going to vote, he shows up at the voting booth and gets his ballot and doesn't actually vote for anyone because he doesn't like any of the politicians. But he doesn't want to have to pay money for not voting. But there, there are countries that do that. I'm opposed to doing that. People say, oh, well, it's healthy to get people to go vote. No, actually, you're you're choosing to vote by not voting. And I don't think that I, I, I just I don't think we should punish people for that. I, I, I think that there are plausible reasons people have for deciding I hate them all. And in having plausible reasons for hating them all, uh, there are there is a rational basis for people to say, no, not me, not my guy. I don't like any of them. A pox on all their houses. I think it's plausible. But I wonder, I, I, I do wonder when you have a guy like Bernie Sanders, will any of those people get off and say, hey, I'm, I don't like any of them, but I really hate socialists. I really hate communists. This nation is against communism. I better go vote. Listen to John Avalon covering Bernie Sanders' oppo research on CNN. Add to this Sanders' now infamous honeymoon in Moscow near the end of the Cold War, his praise for the Soviet Union's public transportation and youth programs, while somehow never finding time to meet with Nobel Prize winning Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived in Vermont at the time, it may speak to Sanders' general sympathies at the time. Now, I'm not even getting into Sanders' 1970s advocacy for nationalizing most major industries or his since-renounced call to abolish the CIA or his assertion to a Vermont high school students in 1972 that some U.S. action in Vietnam was, quote, almost as bad as what Hitler did. I'm simply pointing out that Sanders' vision of democratic socialism has extended far beyond the Danish-style welfare state, as he likes to claim. And you can bet that's going to be an issue in the general election if his opponents don't make it one in the Democratic primary. And that's your reality check. 
Well, the question is, is it too late for the Democrats to make it a point in the Democratic primary when in on Tuesday, a week from today is Super Tuesday, a third of Democratic delegates will be chosen and Bernie is expected to win most of them. Uh, will it be too late to stop him? And you know, the funny thing is watch all the Democrats get on board with Bernie Sanders uh, after this is done. Uh, they'll all get on board and they'll love it. They will champion him and they'll still call you a hateful bigot for backing Donald Trump. When we come back, I want to shift gears. There's a big story in Georgia. It's consuming the legislature in ways they didn't expect. Plant Shearer, a Georgia power coal plant in middle Georgia. There's a coal ash pond and residents say it's leaching chemicals into the groundwater and the well water. And it's become a big thing in the legislature. I want to discuss it with some of the residents. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm waiting for Mike Pless to give me a phone call. Um, it, it is, uh, he, he, actually, he's, he's dealing with a doctor's appointment as well today, uh, which, which may be interfering with it, but hopefully we'll be able to get him to call in. I, I want to bring you up to speed though, on the issue. Uh, and the issue is it, it looks uh, on its surface. It is a middle Georgia issue, not a, not a statewide issue here in Georgia, but it actually is because Georgia power has a number of coal burning power plants around the state, not just plant Shearer in middle Georgia and the ash from the coal, uh, tends to be stored in ponds, a coal ash ponds, and many of those ponds are not lined on the bottom. Uh, for example, if you if you dispose of your garbage, your your trash heap needs to be lined. Your your county municipal garbage dump needs to be lined so that debris and materials don't sink into the uh, groundwater. And a lot of coal ash ponds are not lined and material minerals can leach into the groundwater. Uh, now, joining me, Mike Pless from uh, the Lake Juliet area. Mike, thanks so much for being with me. Oh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, now, this issue, I was I was just explaining to, to listeners before you called in, it, it, it appears to be a middle Georgia issue, but it has suddenly taken over the legislature, and, and it's actually a larger issue because there are coal ash ponds around the state that are unlined. Uh, and I, I wondered if you could, uh, just for the listeners, kind of ex- explain uh, what's happening up to your well in your area in Juliet, Georgia. Okay. Well, um, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, we're, I live here in Juliet and, uh, my wife has been, uh, was born and raised here and, uh, actually a couple of generations living up here. So, um, I've been imported in, but, uh, we're, we are actually talking about Ash Pond one at, at uh, Plant Shara. Um, but there is a much bigger view. So we may be myopic in looking at this particular place, but we need to bear in mind that this is an industry wide issue and it goes all the way across the united states in fact it's a global issue because any coal-fired uh, electric generating plant has coal ash as a byproduct as a waste product and what they do with that coal ash has everything to do with the environmental integrity around them so we're just focusing on this one but it does you're right it goes across the state so now what what is happening uh in juliet okay so um, what I find is that when you take a very, very complex issue, one that you may not be familiar with, before you can learn something new, you have to attach to something you already understand and know. Mm-hmm. Most of us here in the South understand what happens if you were to take a gallon jug of tea or water 
and set it out, set some tea bags in the top of it, close the lid, and then just, well, you don't even have to close the lid. Just set the tea bags in the top of it, sit out in the sun, and just wait. And we know what happens. The tea does not leave the bag. The tea leaves stay in the little bag, but things leach out of it called tannins, and, uh, and, and it colors our water. And we, we have a little flavor in there, and we add a little sugar to it, and we have sweet tea. Well, fundamentally, that's exactly what happens. We just put it on a larger scale, and we can't see the water in the, in the, uh, the, under the ground, which would be like in the, in the gallon jug. But essentially, that's exactly what's happening. They've got coal ash. We've got tea. They set it in the ground. We set it in the top of our jar. Um, add water, and all of a sudden, stuff starts seeping out of the bottom of the coal ash, and it gets down into the groundwater. We stick a straw over here a mile away, two miles away, and we draw water out of the ground. We're thinking that it's been filtered by the ground. It should be clean and clear, and historically, it generally has been. But what we don't realize is that the stuff that's been seeping down into the groundwater underneath that coal ash pond does not know Georgia power, power boundaries, and it just simply goes where it goes. And over here in Juliet, we don't have any option for other water sources other than our wells. So we're unknowingly drinking this water that is to one level or another contaminated by what Georgia Power has been letting seep into the ground. Well, what is the – I know there was a movement in the past to to bring city water from Forsyth or elsewhere in Monroe County or, or even making up to Juliet. And at the time, it was resisted, I think, in, in the late 80s, early 90s by people with wells. Uh, is, is there any movement of the county up there to bring in pipes? Well, um, there is talk about it again. Uh, and the problem is uh, there is a practical reality that has to be dealt with, and that is the cost of yeah. it. So that will always slow down progress in a particular area. If the cost is prohibitive or perceived as being prohibitive, uh, then that will slow it down. But there was some progress made back, I'm going to think, around maybe uh, early 2000s, and water lines were brought uh, considerably into the county from south uh, up to Highway 18, 87 intersection in that area. Um, and some were brought further out from Forsyth towards Juliet, down Juliet Road, and some water lines were run further from the north down. Um, but they all failed to reach Juliet because of the cost and because you know the, the, the seeming issue is somewhat resolved. Then you also have the uh, part of that American um, mindset that says we're independent, although mm-hmm. we're seeing less and less of that these days. <laughs> right. But people expect for the government to be uh, to take care of them. But a lot of people, especially people in rural areas who just work hard for a living and provide for their families, they take a certain level of pride of being independent. And, you know, historically people have assumed that the ground does a good job of filtering their water, and so they want their wells. They don't want city water. They don't want to pay for city water. They will pay and maintain their own pumps Well, it, draw, let me draw let, water. I know that uh, there are a couple of people I've talked to in the legislature, and, and I'm, I'm sure this is Georgia Power's position. I'm, I'm trying to get one of their guys on as well, and but I've seen this, this quote out there that the – the hexavalent chromium that's being found in the water uh, is well below EPA standards up there. And, and how would you respond to that? <laughs> well, um, the EPA, it's like everything when you get government. You've got a mixed bag. There are some aspects that are good. 
uh, and there, there are some aspects that fail horribly um, from what I'm reading and understanding and educating myself on. The EPA standard for hexavalent chromium is, is a standard, but it's set so high that most people that deal with the chemistry and understand the interaction with the human body would say that the levels that they've set it at are so incredibly high. And by the way, I think that's uh, for total chromium, not just hexachromium. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are three different types of chromium. There's chromium, there's chromium-3, and chromium-6. Uh, the chromium-6 is what we typically call hexavalent chromium. And um, the, co- the total chromium is like at 100 parts per billion. And uh, that's so high if we're talking about hexachrome hex that uh, the people would be dropping like flies if they were ingesting that on a regular basis. So it's a little bit misleading. Of course, those who don't want to do anything about a problem like this will, of course, lean on that fact and say, well, well look, your, your wells are showing so much lower, a tenth of that perhaps. What are you crying about? Listen, this is the standard the EPA says is safe. No, the EPA just set a standard. They didn't ever say that that's safe. They just set a standard in that particular area because they didn't necessarily know a lot about it. And compared to other things on the list, I don't know the methodology or the rationale, but it would appear that some of the things on the list are set at that level, and that may be okay, and they just set that at that arbitrarily, it looks like. Mm-hmm. But, so, well, you know, to, to use that, it's just like we all know. There's what Mark Twain say, there's lies, damned lies, <laughs> and statistics. Well, and so it, we yeah, can it, use the numbers to justify our position no matter what where we're at. Now, I guess one of the other questions, I remember distinctly several years ago. In fact, I I stumbled on a couple of things while I was researching to, to bring myself up to speed on this. And I remember distinctly several years ago in the Juliet area, people were finding uranium in their wells and, and they were wondering if that may be related to uh, Georgia Power. And it turns out that in, in the Piedmont area under the granite, uh, uranium can leach and radon can come up and people were having cancer because of the, the sure. well water with uranium. And but that led me to to a thing. I, I guess it was um, um, Duke University, uh, it, which Admiral suggests Vanguard. that mm-hmm. yeah, some of it may be naturally occurring. And and yeah. I, I mean, can we decide whether or not it's it's George Power? Is it naturally occurring chromium? Well, I, I think uh, I, the article you're referring to is by uh, I believe you pronounce his name uh, Abner Vanguard, and he and his team did um, research primarily in North Carolina area. And you're you're correct. In the Piedmont rocks, rock strata, um, there is a lot of fractured rock, and there between water and rock interactions, there can be some naturally occurring levels of hexavalent chromium. And if you look at it, if you read the article and get into the depths of it, and if you're not scientifically minded or whatever, which isn't a bad thing. I went to law school, are, just so you know. Yeah, okay. You uh, you can look at that, and your, and your eyes can start glazing over. But if you stick with it and look through uh, the information, what he's saying is that it may be naturally occurring, but in the areas where he was around coal ash ponds, the elevations were higher than the surrounding area. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, um, there's also a coal ash fingerprint. Certain elements that are leach out of coal ash will also be present along with hexavalent chromium. His article does say that it is alarming that uh, if, from what their data was indicating, that there could be large percentages of the population that are exposed to unhealthy levels of hexavalent chromium that are naturally occurring. And this creates a little bit of a problematic thing for municipal water suppliers if they're not you know, filtering for that and the expense related right. to that. And it's not really saying anything other than what it is, and that is these are unhealthy levels that people may be being exposed to. But that does not mean 
that like if we test our waters around here, and that's been a little bit of a weakness I've been concerned about, is that if the only thing we talk about is hexavalent chromium, mm-hmm. that may get attention because of the Aaron Brockovich case that out in California. Right. But it but it focuses on hexavalent chromium, and then the conversation becomes about the validity of hexavalent chromium, and we start ignoring the other things that are also in the water that are not naturally occurring, like strontium and vanadium, and, and those are things that come from coal ash. Mm-hmm. Right, and well, now, have, have, have those been found in the water up at Juliet, too? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I so, have a shallow well and a deep well, and they were tested. Uh, the results came back this past October. And I, I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit skeptical at first. And so what I needed to do is actually research for myself to find out, am I seeing the same information no matter where the source is coming from? Mm-hmm. Am I hearing the same sort of information, kind of get a consensus of, okay, well, I know these people are slanting their information in this direction. These people are slanting in that direction. But if I'm hearing the same basic information, it's probably just two different people, you know, two different opinions are, are slanting the information to support their position. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change the validity of the information. Now, so what are you guys, what would you like the solution to be uh, up there? Because, I mean, it, it looks to me like we, if we've already got groundwater contamination and if it's not naturally occurring, if it is from the coal ash, ash pond, there's damage already done. So what should the solution be from your vantage point? Well, you know, it, it's, it, it, it becomes complicated because there's, there's obviously a short-term issue, but then a much longer-term issue. The longer-term issue would be um, it, it, it's, it's, it's well-known. The, the whole the energy industry has known since back in the 1880s when these things first started up that coal ash is bad stuff. Um, they were early on, the first first coal fire plant was in the UK in 1880. 1900s, it was over here in the US, and they already knew that if you breathe the coal ash that's blown up by the air, or as you're transporting it out to the dump in the back of the plant, it kills people. It messes them up. Sorry about that. Um, it messes them up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, they needed to stop it from flying around, so they wet it down. Well, that, that's a great solution. We all know that would work even with the fireplace ash that comes out. But it created a different problem, a more insidious one, where it seeps down into the ground when you end up having a bunch of this stuff piled up. Well, the industry has known about this all along, but they have suppressed that information because it would not be there to their advantage to have to be do something else with it. It sure is easy just to dig a pit and put it in there and keep it wet. Um, it wasn't until uh, 2015, after the Kingston Dam break and the Dan River pollution area, EPA actually came out with some level of requirements for how to handle coal ash. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that has been the first time that there's been any legislation at all. So when you say, um, when a company says, well, listen, we're in full compliance with all local, state, and federal laws, th- that's easy to say because there <laughs> essentially have been none. Mm-hmm. And the ones that there are, um, are debatable and they keep fluctuating back and forth as to how well they'll be enforced and whether or not they can get extension, et cetera. So, you know, I, I try to keep making things come back to the simplicity because we always get drawn into details. Right. And simplest way to understand it would be, let's take me, uh, I want to change my diesel truck oil, 15 quarts of oil. I'm not allowed to just dump that into the ditch behind my house. Mm-hmm. 
um, because everybody knows, and I agree, that that is going to run off and it's going to pollute the water sources at some point, and my neighbors aren't going to appreciate that, and it's not good uh, stewardship of the environment. See, I don't have a right to do what I want to if it damages the environment and somebody else's right. issues. Well, in the simplest form, we understand that, but Georgia Power apparently feels that it's okay for them to dump a thousand tons of coal ash into uh, a pond that's built on top of an open aquifer, and it's okay to pollute the groundwater for perhaps miles around, and that's that's okay. Um, it's not. Nobody has a right to do that. And um, and the other the other thing is understanding that regardless of the amount of pollution and the different levels of quantities of those different components that might be found in my well water compared to somebody right down the street, we all know that people are impacted differently by different things. I know people that have smoked like chimneys all their life and they've never had lung cancer. Right. And then I know other people that have had not even smoked and they get lung cancer. So on the surface, you'd think, well, there's no rhyme or reason. But going back to the simplicity of it, I'm concerned that the short term is people around here um, need an alternative source of clean drinking water uh, because it appears that there is some level of contamination here. And there are constituents in there in the well um, that indicate it's from coal ash pollution. Proving that will be one thing. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is there is contamination. So in the short term, people need access to clean water. Right. Um, that's a short-term issue. The long-term issue is finding out where that pollution is coming from definitively. And I strongly suspect that it's from Georgia Power's Ash Pond 1. It's online, in contact with the aquifer, and contaminating the aquifer, which we all drink out of. Getting them to do the right thing, I would love for them to be able to recognize, look at what's going on with Duke Energy, look what's going on with um, um, up in Virginia, with theirs and see the handwriting on the wall. And that is as more light has been shined on this issue, um, the power companies have had to do a best practice and actually remove the coal ash from the ground and put it into lined landfills, much like we do household Mm -hmm. garbage. It's the safest thing we know of to handle it. Mike, um, I, I'm afraid yeah. I, I got to leave it there with you because uh, sure. I'm 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 out of time and got a hard commercial break I got to get to. But look, this Not is helpful. Problem. I appreciate it very much, and and thank you very much for coming on. You're welcome. Man. Absolutely. Uh, I, I also just just uh, I'm I'm getting somebody from Georgia Power to come on as well. I, I want to get both sides of the story for you guys at the top of the next hour. Uh, I, John Kraft from uh, Georgia Power is going to join me as well. Uh, but thank you very much to Mike Pless for uh, giving the take for the residents of Juliet in Georgia. Uh, this issue consuming the legislature right now. And we'll have Georgia Power on at the top of the next hour to get their take. You can call in and be a part of the program. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Don't forget to text the word ARMY to 33777. Here's why. In the next hour, uh, I I am going to talk to George Power. I want to do due diligence and get both sides of the situation in the Juliet area as there is going to be big legislation pending. And frankly, if uh, the Democrats' version of the legislation passes, we're all going to see our our power rates go up. Uh, It will be costly 
to deal with the situation uh, in Juliet and around the state where Georgia Power has coal ash plants. So I, I want to get their take on it. Uh, but uh, the big issue, there is a legislation pending in the legislature, Senator Bill Heath, who's retiring, that would allow churches to designate individual church members to be armed in church services. The uh, the problem under current legislation, churches can allow congregants to carry weapons if the churches choose. There are a lot of churches that have chosen not to do that, not because they don't want it, but because they want to be able to designate who in the congregation is allowed to to have them. So Heath is seeking to change the legislation to make it clear that churches can designate groups of people uh, to be armed in order to expand the number of churches that, that allow people to be armed. Uh, and there's another bill to deal with uh, reciprocity to allow anyone in Georgia, uh, regardless of which state they're from, to carry a gun. You want to text ARMY to 33777 to reach out to the legislature and support i want to take a quick time out to thank a sponsor this week and i gotta tell you i'm a fan because of what blue vine does being a small business owner you know so the radio show you're listening to my podcast it is of my morning radio show you know i don't even make a salary off this thing i'm still trying to grow advertisers and so thanks to blue vine for that but it's a small business and i've got other people to that i've got to pay on payroll i've got expenses i've got to meet for satellite and costs uh for distribution editing production things like that so i I'm not actually making a salary on any of this stuff. Uh, as a result, I am a small business uh, looking to grow, looking for advertisers, and I understand what it means to reinvest. I also know what it means to need access to capital. And running a business, I mean, it is a challenge. Securing extra cash flow doesn't have to be a challenge. Blue Vine helps you get a line of credit. It's fast, it's easy, it's simple. There are so many headaches in running a business. Uh, you shouldn't have to worry about stuff like that. Blue Vine's actually an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit up to $250,000, whether you need the money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, pay an unexpected expense. Through Blue Vine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit. Blue Vine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is very easy. You just go to getbluevine.com slash Eric. For listeners of The Eric Erickson Show, Blue Vine is offering a special limited time promotion, a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with Blue Vine. You go to getbluevine.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, for more details. All you have to do is go to getbluevine.com slash Eric and apply. It's quick. It's easy. It's a meaningful way to help your business in as little as 24 hours. The promotional offer, it's subject to terms and conditions. You can find those at getbluevine.com slash Eric. And thank you to Blue Vine for sponsoring the show. From the North Georgia mountains to the Florida line and from the Chattahoochee all the way to the Atlantic covering the entire state of Georgia, I am Eric Erickson. This is my show and the phone number if you want to call in and talk to me is 877-97-ERIC. That translates to 877-973-7425. In the last half hour, I talked to Mike Pless. Uh, he is one of a group of residents in Juliet, Georgia. If you know uh, Whistle Stop Cafe, what uh, the fried green tomato movie that that's that's Juliet, Georgia. Uh, it stands in the shadows of Plant Shearer, which is a coal-burning power plant operated by Georgia Power on Lake Juliet, where I go on a regular basis with my kayak. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful area. 
Uh, and the residents there have found chromium in their water, and they are blaming Georgia Power. There is some research to suggest it may be naturally occurring. Uh, in fact, uh, several years ago, uh, there was all sorts of concern about uranium in the water. There was a pocket of people in the Juliet area who had gotten cancer, uh, abnormally high cancer rates, and they started testing the water, and it turns out there was uranium in, in uh, it was. It's naturally occurring in the Piedmont region. Deep wells uh, sometimes get uranium in them, and uh, people get radon in their houses and stuff. And it's naturally occurring. And, and back in the late '80s, early '90s, there was an effort to bring in water to pipe, uh, run lines to Juliet. And the, the residents insisted they had good well water, so they didn't do it. And, and now we're at this point where there are no uh, freshwater pipelines. Everybody has wells, and we've got problems. And, of course, this comes at a time when coal-burning power plants are under fire nationwide uh, by environmentalists. Uh, and I wanted to, having talked to residents of Juliet, wanted to get someone on from Georgia Power and, and talk to them about it. And John Kraft from Georgia Power is joining me. John, welcome. Thanks, Eric. Uh, good to be on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I wanted to get your take on this. We, we know the situation. Residents in Juliet have found chromium in the in their uh, shallow wells. We, we know in deep wells there's uranium that's naturally occurring. There's dispute over this and what Georgia Power can do or should do. And, and really just wanted to, to get your side of the story here on, on how you all see this issue. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, of course, uh, we took uh, early action a number of years ago, announcing that we'd be closing all 29 of our ash ponds across the state, including the one at Plant Shear. And uh, so we've been proceeding um, uh, with our plans in that regard to get these, uh, these ash ponds closed and um, uh, make sure we've got uh, good, stable closures for the long term. Now, our, I guess one of the big concerns is what are, what's going to happen to the coal ash plant? Will it be lined or not, or will stuff be removed from there? What, what goes on? Yeah, well, just a little background. So the federal EPA and then even more stringent Georgia rules uh, under the EPD have specified two ways to close an ash pond, either excavate it or close it in place. And they've determined that either, either method can be protective of the environment. And so we're doing a mixture of those uh, based on a site-by-site analysis. So there's no cookie-cutter uh, approach for an ash pond. We uh, employ where we go out and get uh, expert advice from professional engineers, professional geologists. They evaluate the, the location, the size, the amount of material, even the geology of the area in coming up with the, the best recommendation for a particular site. So at Plant Shear, our plan is to close it in place, but in addition, we'll add uh, proven engineering methods. These are accepted methods and other regulatory, uh, by regulatory bodies and in other states across the nation uh, that will further enhance those closures. Now, the folks in the area there say that Georgia Power is to blame for the chromium in the well water. I mean, what, what's Georgia Power's position on that? Yeah, well, we've got an extensive network of 57 groundwater monitoring wells at Plant Shear, and these were cited by third-party professional geologists specifically to detect any impacts to water. So they told us where they should go for the best detections uh, of, of any issues that might, might be of concern for water. We are showing no detections above state or federal standards uh, for drinking water. Based on that extensive data, collected and we report that to the EPD. We report it on our website. We put all our data out there publicly. Again, we're seeing nothing above or even close to a state or federal 
uh, drinking water standard uh, on or leaving our property. Now, it, when I it, when I talked to Mike in the last half hour, I, I mentioned that to him that the federal standard is a hundred parts per million, I guess, uh, and per billion, I yeah, think billion. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It's a hundred parts per billion, and they've been finding in some areas ten parts per billion. And we talked about the study up at, at Duke and the University of Arkansas that even in some areas of the Piedmont, they're finding 10 parts per billion. And there is this this question as to whether or not it's naturally occurring or is it coming from coal ash plants? Right. I've, I've heard some of those uh, heard of some of those studies as well. That's that's very interesting data. Um, uh, so, you know, again, that's. Um, our data and our wells posted around the, the site are showing us no issues of concern in terms of, uh, you know, anything a- approaching a, a drinking water standard uh, specific to chromium. All samples of our wells on the property boundary are not only well below state and federal drinking water standards, but are even below the naturally occurring background levels on our site. Oh, that's interesting. So let, let me ask you this then. It's, there clearly is a, a movement among some in the legislature to crack down on this, force you guys to, to dig it all up, move it out of the way, not leave it in place. Uh, what are you guys advising the legislature on this? And and I, I guess there's a, a side angle here of how much of this do you guys view is is concerned versus how much is concern amplified with a partisan agenda? Yeah, well, and I'm not involved personally in those discussions. I know we, we are engaged in, in providing information on the subject uh, to legislators. It's important uh, that, that um, you know, we, we have our voice in that mix, of course. Um, so basically, you know, our plans, again, are, are to follow the, the regulations, and then we're applying these additional measures that will further enhance it. At Plant Share specifically, our plan is to we'll dewater the pond, we'll get as much water out of it as possible, following all our permits and special, you know, processes, uh, water treatment processes in that, in that phase. Then we'll consolidate the ash into a much smaller footprint, smaller by several hundred acres and then we'll not only you'll hear the term cap in place so we're not only we're not just capping in place we're going to use an expanded cover system that'll go beyond the the boundaries of the ash itself and the the purpose of that is to prevent rainwater infiltration water flow through that field uh, and that should further uh, reduce the amount of water and, and make it even more uh, a more protective closure uh, for that shear pond. Now, just as a random aside here, John, I, coal power plants in this country, we hear the people on the campaign trail now, uh, it's become a big issue. I know you guys have been diversifying energy around the state. Uh, you got nuclear power. Uh, there's that massive solar farm uh, they're building just south of me. Um and I, I think Twiggs County, somewhere down there off I-16. What is the future of coal power versus other power in Georgia for, for residents? Well, yeah, I think it's clear that, that coal is under some pressure. Um, we have retired a number of coal units in recent years. We currently have, I think, three active uh, coal plant sites. Those are uh, some of the larger ones. The plant Shear, as you mentioned, is, is one of the largest in the nation. Also one of the most efficient 
uh, power plants in the nation. Uh, so it, it churns out a tremendous amount of power 24-7. Uh, we have been expanding into solar, as you mentioned, so we do believe in having an all-of-the-above approach uh, with renewables, with natural gas, with nuclear, as you mentioned, and also the coal units that we still have in our fleet. Um, Again, the the advantage of these and nuclear, for instance, are they produce power 24 hours a day, you know, through all this rainy weather we've been having where we don't get a lot of solar production. You know, it's it's important that we have the the diversified mix that we can – Ensure we're still providing the power customers need. Well, you know, I was going to actually ask you that because in in states like California and then places in Europe, we're we're seeing this problem where they've gone so far towards solar and wind. When a heat wave comes through or or uh, a lot of rain comes through, there may not be wind or there may not be sun, and they're having trouble with power. And it, it seems like you guys are at least putting some thought into maintaining some regular supplies of power. Definitely. And of course, we work with the Georgia Public Service Commission. We, we update our long-range 20-year outlook every three years. We update that uh, with the Georgia Public Service Commission. They approve our plans. And we've always you know, had that approach of having that balanced mix, a diverse mix of uh, power sources. We, we take some, some arrows uh, over that from, uh, from some quarters uh, you know, over the years. But, but in the end, we th- feel like it's the most uh, responsible approach to make sure we can provide you know, that affordable, reliable power that our customers are, rely- are, are depending on. Well, listen, I, I thank you very much for stopping by. I know it's not an easy issue when there the people's health involved and, and emotion involved and, and worry involved as well. And uh, thank you very much. And it's good to hear that that coal ash pond is going to be wound down at, at Plant Sure as well. Absolutely. Appreciate the chance to kind of tell our story. We've been, we've been trying to get that information out. As I said, we post all our data uh, publicly on our website. So I think up to 18 months before the regulatory requirements, we had data out on our website. So uh, we want to be open and, and upfront about this and, and help people understand uh, you know, the process and what we're seeing from our results. Thank you very much. John Kraft with Georgia Power. Um, uh, look, I, I wanted to get both sides. It is a difficult issue. You're dealing with people's health. Uh, they had the uranium issue in the same area a while back with the wells, and so people obviously are on edge. And now there's the the chromium issue uh, in the Piedmont area, and uh, whether it's it's naturally occurring or George Power. And you know, I I I get the concern of people when you say, well, it's it's well below what the EPA said. The EPA standard it's a hundred parts per billion. And in some of the wells, they've been finding 10 parts per billion, uh, which is way less than the standard. But do you want to drink the water is, is a question. And then there is the, the emotional issue of can we separate out? Uh, is it the leaching from Georgia Power? Is it naturally occurring? Is it a combination of the two? And what can be done? Uh, there, there are efforts now to get Georgia Power to the Democrats in Georgia have a plan to require uh, that they get rid of the coal ash pond altogether. Uh, Georgia Power's plan is to essentially cap it, prevent water from getting into it, uh, and stop it from leaching into the groundwater, uh, but leave something in place, just essentially uh, getting as much water out of it can dry the ash and and then cap it in, in place. Uh, and then, of course, there's the environmental concern there of on top of the emotions of the people in place in places like Lake Juliet. There is also the, the the side agenda of some who want to shut down coal power plants altogether. 
which may not necessarily be the best idea. As John Kraft said, it is an inefficient plant. Uh, and then, of course, you got the people who aren't sympathetic at all to those who live there and say, well, you can move. But that's not necessarily realistically true for a lot of people. And some of them, they've been there for a very long time. They don't want to move. It's a beautiful area up there. Lake Juliet is a gorgeous, gorgeous area. Uh, frankly, I wish I could buy land on the lake, but Georgia Power owns all of it. <laughs> um, it's gorgeous. I love to take my kayak up there. It is a difficult, difficult situation. And I, I wanted to make sure everybody got their side of the story out on this as the legislature. Uh, believe it or not, this is thrown a complete curveball to the legislature they were not looking at having to deal with george power issues this year they were looking at the budget and they were looking at adoption reform and a couple other issues uh the democrats of the legislature have seized on this issue uh and are advancing bob trammell in the house jen jordan in the senate uh have been advancing legislation to crack down on georgia power and then of course for among republicans there's the side angle of the democrats looking like they want to go after georgia power because georgia power appears to to support republican or at least chamber of commerce interests so it it's you got politics in the mix where everybody views politics and and really what's ultimately at issue here is you have a major business that provides power to the state uh, that could fundamentally see our costs have to go up to deal with this issue uh, versus people who live in the area whose well water they're finding particulate in the well water and they're concerned about it. And there really aren't a lot of easy answers. And there's still a lot of questions between naturally occurring and, and from the well water from the plant and it's a mess. Uh, they pay me to tell the stories and, and to give, keep you guys informed. I am not in the legislature. I will not offer the solution, but good luck to the legislature for having to deal with the issue. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I want to bring you guys up to speed on this legislation I mentioned. Um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a profile of two pieces of Second Amendment legislation winding their way through the Georgia legislature. The, the first is from Bill Heath of Bremen. He says the legislation is designed to allow churches and other places of worship and uh, church-run schools to protect themselves. Uh, and a, essentially what it is, I, I love that it's Senate Bill 357. <laughs> I mean, I really do. I, I wonder if that was intentional. Senate Bill 357, easy to remember as a Second Amendment bill. It would aim to allow places of worship to allow selected licensed gun owners to carry weapons on the property. The legislature is not voting on the property. Um, it is uh, it, it is legislation right now to uh, that, that they're considering, and hopefully they will advance it. Um, and the reason that I think this is good legislation is because the legislature did pass a law a couple of years ago that says um, individuals, churches can allow congregants to carry weapons if they if they got a concealed carry permit. And that sounds good, but the, the practical effect is this. Um, the a lot of churches decided they don't want to do that because they don't want every member of the congregation coming in with a gun. Not that everyone would, but that's actually been the thinking of a number of congregations. Uh, I think one in 10 Georgia congregations uh, has allowed uh, people to, to come into church carrying guns. And his concern is that the Original legislation is an all-or-nothing situation, and that has uh, turned some churches off to the idea of allowing guns in church. And so what Heath would like to do is to 
change the legislation and say the churches can allow designated individuals or groups of individuals. So it could be everyone in the congregation, or it could just be a, a security committee of deacons or elders in the church uh, who carried the guns. And so he, he wants to tweak the language to allow churches more flexibility in deciding the class of people in the church who can. Uh, members versus guests. Uh, deacons for, <laughs> have uh, deacons versus elders. <laughs> the deacons can carry guns. The elders can't. <laughs> In the Presbyterian churches, that that would be fun. Um, the safety committee of, of the diaconate is allowed, but the rest of the deacons aren't. They, I mean, churches need that sort of flexibility because right now there are a number of churches who actually are allowing congregants in uh, churches to carry guns, but they're not making it generally acceptable. And technically, that's a violation of the law. Because the current law is an all or nothing standard, either everyone can or no one can. And what a lot of churches are doing is saying, okay, this group of people in the church, we're going to allow you to carry guns in. But technically that goes against the law. So Heath wants to change the law, Senate Bill 357, to allow churches to do what they're already doing and make it legal and, dare I say, kosher. <laughs> um, and now there's another piece of legislation uh, that is a Second Amendment piece of legislation. This is from Mandy Ballinger. Uh, she's from Canton. And uh, her legislation is about reciprocity. Right now, Georgia operates under what's called reciprocity. That is, uh, if Georgia is allowed, if you're a concealed carry permit holder in Georgia, is allowed to carry a gun in another state, uh, then the people from that state are allowed to carry a gun in Georgia. And there are 32 of the 50 states where that's the case. Now, what Ballinger wants to do is she wants to get rid of the uh, of the laws that stands and essentially allow any person who can carry a gun in the state of their residence to carry a gun in Georgia. Um, is, in other words, allow someone, let's say we don't have reciprocity. I don't know. We've got 32 states. Let me pick a state. I, I don't know whether we have reciprocity or not with South Dakota. But if we don't have reciprocity with South Dakota, then if someone from South Dakota comes to Georgia, they would get in trouble for having a gun with them. And what Ballinger wants to do is get rid of this reciprocity nonsense and just basically say, if your state licenses you to carry a gun, uh, you won't be in trouble if you come to Georgia with your gun. And that seems to be a no-brainer to me. But uh, the the legislature is dragging their feet on this. There are some hesitation, some apprehension of doing any of these reforms. They're kind of no-brainers to me, but you're probably going to have to uh, mobilize a base of people around the state of Georgia to get this stuff done. And I want to make it easy. You know why I've got my activist portal. If you text the word ARMY to 33777, I intend to, I haven't done it yet, but I intend to set up an action alert so that uh, conservatives around the state and their friends can call the legislature and have them support, tell them to support Bill Heath's legislation, 357, and Mandy Ballinger's legislation on reciprocity, uh, expanding gun rights in the state of Georgia, and also helping a lot of churches who want to do this. They just don't want everybody uh, coming in with guns. So text the word ARMY to 33777, and I'll get you engaged and set up to go. When we come back, we need to shift gears now to the presidential election. There is a debate tonight in South Carolina. Mike Bloomberg uh, set off the campaign trail to do some debate prep, and Elizabeth Warren has a new attack ad against Bloomberg. Why is she attacking him? I'll explain when we come back. Yes, you can always text recipe to 33777, uh, but also army to 33, A-R-M-Y to 33777, uh, as we are probably going to have to get active with 
people around the state on the gun legislation in the state legislature. I want to move, though, to national politics at the moment. Elizabeth Warren uh, is running an ad in Super Tuesday states. In, in the grand scheme of things, honestly, it's not a huge buy. And the reason it's not a huge buy is she just doesn't have a ton of money right now. Uh, but I want to play for you Elizabeth Warren's advertisement because there's some some necessary relevance here. Uh, this again, Elizabeth Warren. I'm Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg. Mike, Mike Bloomberg. Bloomberg. You've probably seen more ants from Michael Bloomberg than the rest of us running for president put together. Mm. Big money is powerful, but it doesn't always win. I know that firsthand. When I ran against an incumbent Republican to take a U.S. Senate seat away from Mitch McConnell, Bloomberg endorsed the Republican, and he raised big money for him. But I beat him anyway. I'm Elizabeth Warren, and I approve this message because I believe our democracy should work for you, not the billionaires. That's the Elizabeth Warren ad. Uh, it is up in Texas and elsewhere uh, as she's trying to make inroads against Mike Bloomberg. Why? There are a lot of people out there saying, why on earth uh, isn't she running to stop Bernie Sanders? They all need to be running against Bernie. But Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are on the same side of these issues. That's what people miss. You see, Elizabeth Warren is out there praising capitalism and the free market, saying she's not a socialist, but agrees with Bernie Sanders on uh, free college education, uh, paid for child care, uh, Medicare for all, uh, you name it, uh, she's in favor of it. And the reason is that she's not attacking Bernie is because she wants to be seen as the reasonable alternative to Bernie. Now, I, I realize uh, the media is in abject freakout mode over Bernie Sanders right now. Uh, there is absolutely a meltdown over Bernie Sanders. It is it, the media is beside themselves with the idea of Bernie Sanders uh, being the Democratic nominee, they they are genuinely upset at the idea of him uh, advancing as he is. They are angry, in fact, that uh, that he he doesn't seem to be able to be stopped. They are desperate to stop him. They're trotting out the the opposition research. Here is uh, Tim O'Brien with Bloomberg's campaign. He was on with. Uh, Allison Camarada and John Berman on CNN this morning. Listen to this. We've got a candidate who's risen in the polls because of his track record. Bernie has all of this loopy stuff in his background saying things like, you know, uh, women get cancer from having too many orgasms or toddlers should run around naked and touch each other's genitals to Sorry, insulate what? themselves from porn. Why has what? this stuff not been more surfaced? He's written about women's rape fantasies. That hasn't been surfaced. That's the loony side of Bernie. The policy side of Bernie is he has not been good on immigration. He has not been good on criminal justice reform. He was a, an avid backer of the 94 crime bill. He's bad on guns, uh, bad on immigration. And as a legislator, as a member of the Senate, I think he's only sponsored seven pieces of legislation, two for post offices in Vermont. That's Tim O'Brien. That is um, Mike Bloomberg's senior advisor. And you heard Allison Camerata. What? Yes. Everything he just said about Bernie Sanders is absolutely true. It is remarkable to me that Allison Camerata, who is a, a good journalist, was shocked to hear that. She didn't know. Bernie Sanders wrote rape fantasies about women. 
Bernie Sanders wrote books describing how most men like to go into the bathroom and, well, do things to themselves while thinking about uh, tying up and abusing women. He that Bernie Sanders did this. Bernie Sanders did these sorts of things. And Democrats have never gone after Bernie on any of this stuff before. They never felt the need to go after Bernie Sanders on this stuff before. And so they're going after Bernie Sanders on this stuff now. They're trying to stop him as quickly as possible. I played this in the first hour again. This is John Avalon on CNN this morning. Add to this, Sanders' now infamous honeymoon in Moscow near the end of the Cold War, his praise for the Soviet Union's public transportation and youth programs, while somehow never finding time to meet with Nobel Prize-winning Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived in Vermont at the time, it may speak to Sanders' general sympathies at the time. Now, I'm not even getting into Sanders' 1970s advocacy for nationalizing most major industries or his since-renounced call to abolish the CIA or his assertion to a Vermont high school students in 1972 that some U.S. action in Vietnam was, quote, almost as bad as what Hitler did. I'm simply pointing out that Sanders' vision of democratic socialism has extended far beyond the Danish-style welfare state, as he likes to claim. And you can bet that's going to be an issue in the general election if his opponents don't make it one in the Democratic primary. And that's your reality check. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, raising all this stuff now. Now, the practical side of this, of course, is that if Bernie Sanders does become the Democratic nominee, they're all going to forget they ever had this conversation. They're all going to forget it. They'll pretend it's it's old news. We, we don't need to talk about it. It's not relevant. It was 40 years ago. You will see the media dismiss it. But Elizabeth Warren's not going there. And that's starting to make reporters mad. Here's the thing. There's a Democratic debate tonight. And the media has been trying to make Elizabeth Warren happen forever. And now who is doing the, I, I have no idea. Let me see. Uh, South Carolina Democratic debate. Well, who is doing the debate tonight? Um, it is da, 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 up CBS. It's a CBS debate. Uh, Nora O'Donnell, Gail King, Margaret Brennan, Major Garrett, and Bill Whitaker We'll be doing the debate from 8 p.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. Eastern. They'll be doing the debate. Okay, they'll be doing the debate. Um, I, they like, some of them like Elizabeth Warren. And see, this is the problem. Um, everyone wants the Democrats to come after Bernie Sanders. Everyone wants Bernie everyone to attack Bernie Sanders. Everyone wants uh, everyone uh, to to pile on Sanders and stop Sanders. And you hear it in the media. Please stop Sanders. Please stop Sanders. We got to stop Sanders. Come on. Sanders must be stopped, please. And you know that Bloomberg's going to come after Sanders. You know that Buttigieg is going to come after Sanders. You know that Biden is going to come after Sanders. And Elizabeth Warren is not because those are her people. She wants to be the Bernie Sanders of the race and she knows it. So she can't go after Bernie. And by the way, she already tried going after Bernie and was left licking her wounds over, over going after Bernie. It ended badly for Elizabeth Warren. So now she's got a new, so now she's got a new one. Here's Pete Buttigieg going after Bernie. 
Um, may I have to ask you about this? Senator Sanders has been criticized for remarks that he made uh, praising a literacy program during Fidel uh, Castro's regime in Cuba. Uh, he stood by those comments last hour. Here's what he said. He said, you know what? I think teaching people to read and write is a good thing. Do you think that's a fair assessment? So this is part of what I'm getting at when I say that in our one shot to defeat Donald Trump, we should think carefully about the consequences of nominating Senator Sanders. I don't want, as a Democrat, I don't want to be explaining why our nominee is encouraging people to look on the bright side of the Castro regime when we're going into the election of our lives. We need to stand unequivocally against dictatorships everywhere in the world. <laughs> Let's see if they bring that up on stage tonight. I'm just not sure that it's going to stick. And here's the reason. Bernie Sanders is the Democrats, Donald Trump. And I don't mean that in a bad way. What happens with Donald Trump when the media comes after Donald Trump? Typically, what happens is Donald Trump's supporters double down. You go after Donald Trump, Donald Trump supporters double down in support of Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders supporters do the exact same thing. You go after Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders supporters are going to go to the mat for Bernie Sanders. They're going to defend Bernie Sanders. All it's going to do, these attacks are going to galvanize Sanders' base. And it's it, Bloomberg is going to come in and he's try, going to try to go blow up uh, Bernie. In fact, Tim O'Brien, his campaign uh, chief advisor, says that it, they are going to run millions of dollars in ads against Bernie coming up very soon. They're going to go on the attack against Bernie Sanders. They're going to drop opposition research on Bernie Sanders. You heard him beginning on CNN this morning with some of those statements that, that the loony Bernie standards. Um, here's here's the problem. South Carolina is on Saturday. Do you remember what we were talking about on Friday on this program? I do. I had to go back and look, though. We were talking about Bill Barr, the attorney general, the attorney general uh, and his comments about the president. Remember that that was last week. We were all talking about that. What are we talking about this week? Uh, so far, the coronavirus and Bernie Sanders. We're going to talk about the debate tonight, who won the debate tomorrow. That'll give a bit of a bounce. But you know what the data shows? The data shows that uh, the balance out of Nevada faded for a lot of the candidates, including Elizabeth Warren. But uh, the voting happened early. So many people voted early in Nevada. Elizabeth Warren couldn't capitalize on the bit of the bounce that she got. The people who showed up in the Nevada caucuses three days after that debate actually uh, voted for Elizabeth Warren, a significant portion of them. But the people who early voted had dismissed her and didn't vote for her. She got hurt by early voting. Well, the early voting is happening in South Carolina and the early voting is happening in California. And do you know what the early voting in South Carolina and California and Texas and, and these other Super Tuesday states have? They've got Elizabeth Warren taking on uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg blowing up on a debate stage and Bernie Sanders standing supreme. That matters. Now, more people will vote on election day than an early vote, but it still matters because it pads the vote. The time to attack Bernie Sanders was three weeks ago, not today. Every dollar that Bloomberg now spends on Bernie, a third of the Democratic delegates will be picked up by Tuesday. And every dollar spent by Bloomberg probably helps Donald Trump, not not Bloomberg. It is fascinating 
to watch the Democrats repeat the 2016 Republican primary. Everyone wants to reign supreme. Everyone wants to be the last man standing. And so none of them get out of the race. None of them are willing to change. None of them are willing and able to do anything to shake up the race and upend the ability to beat the president of the United States. I want to play you one more clip by Tim O'Brien uh, from Bloomberg. Uh, they're in damage control mode, even as they're going after after Bernie. Bloomberg. Four days ago, Mayor Bloomberg said that he would release three women from their NDAs that they signed as part of being a part employees of his company. Yes. Have any of them come forward since then? To do uh, I don't know the answer to that. You know, the thing I would point out is that the, uh, the lawyers of Bloomberg LP went through 30 years of sexual harassment cases. Bloomberg LP has not had an unusual number of sexual harassment cases. There's been headlines saying 45 women or 64 women have filed sexual harassment suits against Mike Bloomberg. That is simply not true. They were filed against the company. Mike is Bloomberg, that better? I mean, if the company had a culture well, the implication, of sexual harassment was running amok, is that better? Well, I mean, I was a manager there for the last seven years. I, I, that is so defamatory and unfair to say that Bloomberg LP had a culture of sexual harassment. Wait a second. You, you just said that you had all these sexual harassment cases against the company. No, I, my experience there is that is absolutely unfounded and not true. I think it's been made into a political issue by Senator Warren because it's politically useful for her. And well, I admire her. This is I, the think moment. I mean, this is a moment, right, where we're looking at NDAs and we're looking at sexual as harassment. As we should. And Harvey Weinstein was just found guilty. As we should. But it should be fair. It should be handled fairly. Mike Bloomberg had, was involved, named in three NDAs over a 30-year period. None of them involved predatory behavior. It's alleged comments he's made that he's denied. We've said, we'll put those out there in the open as long as the women are comfortable with it. He doesn't have the blanket authority, as the senator well knows, to just lift NDAs involving other people. But you don't know if those three, which he was involved in personally, have come forward to take him up on that. He does not. They're not done with Bloomberg here. Here's the thing. Even if they get rid of Bernie, these other candidates will come after Bloomberg with a vengeance because he's only just now getting into the race. But that's the problem that Democrats forget. You know, they changed the rules for Bernie in 2016. So the Democrats still have some superdelegates, but they don't even come into play until a second round of voting. If Bernie can get a majority of delegates or close to a majority of the delegates, do you really think the Democrats are going to deny him with all of this stuff? And I mean, here's here's Todd Emmer on Fox News this morning, uh, making a very relevant point of what the Democrats are facing. And it's it it's not good for the Democrats. Uh, the Democrats embrace of socialism is going to cost them their majority in the House. And they know that it could uh, listen to David Perdue again. I played this the first hour, but listen to this again. Well, we have every opportunity to get the House back. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a gift to the Republican Party and the the economic uh, turnaround that President Trump is executing right now. Look, we have the greatest contrast that America has ever had, I think, between two potential presidents here. Uh, on the one hand, you've got uh, Donald Trump, who is executing the greatest economic turnaround in U.S. history. On the other hand, you've got Bernie Sanders, who's lived off somebody else his entire life, promising free stuff. If you note who Democrats down ballot want to campaign with, None of them want to, I shouldn't say none, almost all of them want to campaign with someone other than Bernie. There are a few who want to campaign with him in very progressive areas of the country, 
But by and large, you go to t- the swing districts in Texas. You know, Lucy McBath here in Georgia, the, the swingiest district in the country right now, Lucy McBath, she took it from Karen Handel. She's endorsed Bloomberg. She wants nothing to do with Bernie Sanders. None of the Democrats in Georgia 7, which may flip to the Democrats, want anything to do with Bernie Sanders. The, I've been telling you for a while, the Republicans don't have a path forward to take back the House. Suddenly they do with Bernie Sanders. And the proof of that is Fred Upton. None of you probably know who Fred Upton is. He is a old Republican who should not be there anymore. He's been there forever. And he was going to retire. Bernie Sanders taking the lead. Upton's district is now a, a wobbly swing district. And Upton didn't have the stamina to fight. And people expected him to resign or to retire and not run again. He's now announcing he's going to run again. Why? Because he sees Sanders becoming the Democratic nominee and thinks that will help him make it easier for him to win re-election. And other Democrats know it as well. Suddenly, the Georgia Senate races look great for the Republicans with Bernie. Even the Colorado Senate race, Cory Gardner, looks great with Bernie. Uh, up there. It's a problem for the Democrats to have Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket, and they're trying everything they can to stop him, but he keeps winning. Ooh, this just happened on Fox News a few minutes ago. Rahm Emanuel sitting down in America's newsroom to talk about the Democrats, and he's a little upset with the rise of Bernie Sanders. Rahm Emanuel used to be the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee uh, before becoming the chief of staff to Barack Obama in his first term. He's the guy who said, never let a crisis go to waste, and well, He's upset. The president at any time in the country. But guess what? Both the guy in the lead right now, the front runner for your former party. Former mayor of Burlington. Former mayor, but he's a, so, a socialist Democrat, yeah. right? And front page story of New York, uh, of the Washington Post today, about all these past comments praising communist leaders. Mm-hmm. He's doubling down today on supporting Fidel Castro, yeah. the former Cuban dictator. Is your party ready to put up somebody who supported well, communists? I mean, it's a, look, here's a, he's going to have to answer this. This is what, in my view, was malpractice in Vegas. Everybody was angry at, and hitting on Mike Bloomberg, whose name wasn't even on the ballot. The guy that was on the ballot and was a frontrunner, you left unscathed. Take an issue, you guys uh, on this channel at least have a different view, which is having done the assault weapon ban mm-hmm. and the Brady Bill for the president, uh, Clinton. Here's a guy, two years ago in Vegas, worst mass shooting in American history, yeah. has the support of the NRA, and nobody touched him about where he was on the Michael assault. Michael Bloomberg had the opportunity. Yeah, as Ed Henry was about to say, Bloomberg even had the opportunity to go there and, and didn't. The gloves are going to come off tonight. You know, I wonder if this is going to be a highly rated. I am honestly tired of the debates, and I don't want to watch this one. And will you guys do me a favor in all sincerity? Will y'all pray for my producer, Charlie, because tomorrow he's going to have to cut up audio from the debate and he doesn't ever handle it well. And as as this is, I'm going to have to turn off my text messages in the morning because he's going to be blowing me up every piece of audio he hears. Uh, he's going to be be with a, a string of expletives and comments to me. We, we need to pray for my producer's soul when he has to engage in cutting up audio in the morning. It's going to be brutal, but it's going to be a I, I got to imagine that they're going to come out punching. Listen, they wanted to take out Bloomberg on the stage last week in Nevada, even though he wasn't on the ballot, because he's a, a he's a usurper, and they resent it. And Elizabeth Warren still wants to. She's coming out after him. But the rest of them want to come after Bernie now on the Cuba comments, on the China comments, on, on the bizarre rape fantasies, on and on and on and on and on. They want to come after Bernie. Uh, but it's, it's only, it's a two-hour debate 
You're going to have seven people on the stage. You had six in the last several debates. You had six. You're going to have seven on this one because Tom Steyer is back on stage. They're going to have to ask Tom Steyer comments. He's going to go off the reservation on climate change stuff. Uh, You're going to have two billionaires on the stage. That gives Bernie an opportunity to talk about people buying the vote. It's going to be difficult. And then you got South Carolina on Saturday and Super Tuesday a week from today. And it's just going to be messy for the Democrats. And all of that helps Bernie Sanders get the nomination from the Democrats. I want to take a quick time out to thank a sponsor this week. And I got to tell you, I'm a fan because of what Blue Vine does, being a small business owner. You know, so the radio show, you're listening to my podcast. It is of my morning radio show. You know, I don't even make a salary off this thing. I'm still trying to grow advertisers. And so thanks to Blue Vine for that. But it's a small business. And I've got other people to that I've got to pay on payroll. I've got expenses I've got to meet for satellite and costs uh, for distribution, editing, production, things like that. So I I'm not actually making a salary on any of this stuff. Uh, as a result, I am a small business uh, looking to grow, looking for advertisers, and I understand what it means to reinvest. I also know what it means to need access to capital. And running a business, I mean, it is a challenge. Securing extra cash flow doesn't have to be a challenge. Blue Vine helps you get a line of credit. It's fast, it's easy, it's simple. There are so many headaches in running a business. Uh, you shouldn't have to worry about stuff like that. Blue Vine's actually an easy, fast way to help support your business growth with a line of credit up to $250,000, whether you need the money to offset upfront costs, secure inventory, pay an unexpected expense through Blue Vine, you can help yourself and your business stay secure for any reason. There's no fee to set up your line of credit. Blue Vine never charges maintenance or prepayment fees. Applying is very easy. You just go to getbluevine.com slash Eric. For listeners of the Eric Erickson Show, Blue Vine is offering a special limited time promotion, a $100 gift card when you take out a loan or open a line of credit with Blue Vine. You go to getbluevine.com slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K, for more details. All you have to do is go to getbluevine.com slash Eric and apply. It's quick, it's easy, it's a meaningful way to help your business in as little as 24 hours. The promotional offer, it's subject to terms and conditions. You can find those at getbluevine.com slash Eric. And thank you to Blue Vine for sponsoring the show. Well, this has happened. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I would love to talk about more than the Democratic primary, but man, it is all consuming. And this just hit the wires from Alan Smith at NBC News. Here's the headline. Bloomberg's girlfriend, he's not married, he's got a girlfriend, Diana Taylor, uh, and she says, uh, with concerns over NDAs, get over it. Life has changed. I grew up in that world. It was a bro culture. Billionaire Democratic presidential candidate Mike Bloomberg's girlfriend, Diana Taylor, has a message for those bothered by remarks the former New York City mayor made, uh, is alleged to have made, and the non-disclosure agreements used by his company, get over it. In an interview with CBS on Monday, Taylor dismissed concerns over the NDAs with former employees, saying it was 30 years ago, get over it. In none of them was he accused of doing anything and saying anything nasty to a woman. That is not who he is. Uh, she said at a Women for Mike rally in Texas, life has changed. I grew up in that world. It was a bro culture. We have come a very, very long way. And Mike Bloomberg has been at the forefront of the change. Oof. I'm sure in a Me Too culture, that's going to go over very well. Well, Bernie's remarks are not going over well. And I, I got to tell you, I, I spent a little time. So there's this thing called Substack. 
And some of you get emails from me on Substack, and it's where I can just write. You know, I, I run the resurgent on a daily basis, and sometimes I just I, I don't want to write on the schedule that I feel like I need to write for the resurgent. And there are some t- things I want to start doing exclusively for people uh, who are paying, frankly, uh, exclusive podcasts and discounts to my conference and special stuff. And so I've been doing the Substack thing. Um, it's just seven bucks a month for people to subscribe to. And I I wrote a piece this morning and and the title kind of says it all. And millions will vote for a man they hate to stop a man they loathe. And this is what we're going to see, uh, this year in the election, a bunch of people who hate the president will vote for him to stop Bernie Sanders. And a bunch of people who hate Bernie Sanders will vote for him to stop the president. Democrats who have long opposed Bernie Sanders uh, prefer him to Trump. Republicans who long have hated Donald Trump prefer him to Sanders. There are an increasing number of Americans, I think, who will sit on the sidelines. And I actually think that's good. So I I was in Colorado over the weekend. Y'all heard me tell about the, the poor woman who puked next to me on the flight to Atlanta, three-hour plane ride turned into a four-and-a-half ordeal. This woman literally ate bags of vomit. Uh, every time the plane bounced, she would throw up. She had altitude sickness. She was leaving Colorado, uh, trying to get back to New York, was hoping it would settle down, uh, and she just kept throwing up the Dramamine and the Aleve and everything in her system. Um, poor, I felt bad for her. But so I went out to to Colorado Springs to talk to the leadership program of the Rockies, and I have said this here, and I'm going to say it again, and, and I don't mean to bore you with it, but one of the things I said to those people in Colorado at this program, it is a program that trains conservatives, teaches them the ideas of conservatism, the philosophical underpinnings of conservatism. They read the Federalist Papers. They read Hayek. They read Bastiat. They read read Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. uh, All these things to educate them on what it means to be a conservative, to what it means to support free markets. Uh, And they involve themselves in the community. A lot of them run for office. And I told them we live in a day and age where the cult of personality dominates. And it, it's it's not good, but it is where we are. The cult of personality dominates. People are voting for Sanders or against Trump. People are voting for Trump or against Sanders or whoever the Democratic nominee ultimately is if the Democrats can figure out a way to stop Sanders. They're not voting for ideas necessarily. They're voting for people, but the ideas still matter. Believe it or not, in four years, Donald Trump will not be on the ballot. He will be term limited. Donald Trump is not going to run for president again. He can't unless you amend the Constitution. And that's not going to happen. Two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of the states are not going to do it for him. It'll be someone else's turn. And he will go. And the ideas will remain. And what are the ideas? Well, the problem these days with the Republican Party is I don't know what the Republican Party stands for anymore other than defense of the president. And I really don't know what the Democratic Party stands for anymore other than opposition to the president. Sure, the Democrats want to give free stuff to people. Uh, Republicans want to grow government, too. Republicans are, are putting another trillion dollars in the national debt, and they claim to be the party of free markets and limited government, and yet they keep growing government. Now you got this whole idea of national conservatism. Have you all heard about this? National conservatism. Nobody can tell me what national conservatism is other than 
We grow government to reward our friends and punish our enemies. I don't want a government that grows so large to reward our friends and punish our enemies because at some point you will lose control of the government and the other side will punish you and reward their friends. Never give your own side power you don't want the other side to have because there is no such thing as permanence in American politics. And so ideas matter. But it's more than just ideas matter. And, and, and this is what I told the people in Colorado that, yeah, I've, I've, I quote it so often, you guys probably know immediately, here, here he goes again. Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city in which you're in exile. There you'll find your welfare. That's where the ideas ultimately matter. And I believe conservatives have the ideas for your local community. And part of me is kind of excited by the idea, by the prospect, by the theory that the fringes have taken captive the major political parties. And I don't mean fringes disparagingly, but the people who are on the sidelines, on the margins of the parties, are now taking over the parties. The Bernie Sanders folks, he's not even a Democrat, and his supporters have been on the sidelines of the Democratic Party, and suddenly they're about to take it over. In the same way, uh, Donald Trump supporters, a lot of them weren't actually Republicans. Some of them were Democrats. Some of them were Obama voters, and they came in and they took over the Republican Party. And the establishments of both parties completely lost touch. You know, it's not the Russians who are causing Democratic voters to support Bernie Sanders. It's the Democratic voters themselves. The media is so freaked out about the Russians stealing the election, it's never dawned on them. Wait a second, the Democratic voters are doing what the Russians want. Why? Because the elite in this country and both parties failed us. They made a bunch of promises to a bunch of people, and they failed them. They rewarded their friends at their highest levels and forgot about the little guy. And so here comes Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders who claim to care about the little guy. And in, in different respects, they, they seem to care about the little guy in different aspects, et cetera. But it, there, there's a real problem there. And But a lot of Americans loathe both men. And we'll see the people who have long been at the margins of the parties now dominating the parties. And a lot of people, you know what they're going to do? They're going to get out of national politics. They're going to say to hell with Washington, D.C. It's too screwed up. It's broken. And a lot of those people, they're not going to disengage completely. Sure, they'll they'll go figure out how they can earn a living, navigate the world with higher taxes or lower taxes or more regulation or less regulation. Uh, what to do with their kids' education? Do they homeschool or not? How involved do they be? In, in, uh, how involved are they in church or or a charity? But what they are going to do is they're probably going to start paying way more attention to their local community because they're not going to want their local community to be hijacked by a fringe. And so they'll get involved. And they'll pay attention to local politics. And they'll pay attention to the school board meeting they've never paid attention to before. And they'll pay attention to the city council meeting they never paid attention to before. And they'll pay attention to the county commission meeting they've never paid attention to before. And maybe they'll run for office or maybe they'll sit on a board. Maybe they'll try to try to get a slot on the planning and zoning commission or, or an industrial authority board or development authority board. And they'll want to play a role in their community because they've been been—they've decided to check themselves out of national politics. National politics is in their playground. That's where they've gotten power. That's where they found use. And, and now the parties seem to have lost their minds and they still want to be involved in some way. And so they'll start finally seeking the welfare of the community in which they live, realizing that there they're going to find their welfare because Washington is broken. 
Washington can't do the things that Washington claimed to do. All sides are corrupt and all sides are broken and all sides are hostage to the other side. There are two groups in Washington, as, as Everett Dirksen once said, the evil party and the stupid party. And every once in a while, the evil party and the stupid party will get together and do something stupid and evil. And the press will call it a bipartisan accomplishment. And you will turn your nose up to it and say, this is ridiculous. The country's going broke. We're in debt up to our eyeballs. Nobody's got a solution. And you'll say, you know what? If we're going to survive, I got to get my community up to speed. I got to get my community going. I got to get my community locked in. I got to get my community help. And you'll seek the welfare of your community. I don't think it's a bad thing that the parties are cracking up. Because for too long, every single one of us, myself included, I am as guilty as anyone else, we have fixated on the power struggles of Washington, D.C. I'm a Republican. You're a Democrat. I want my side to win. You want your side to win. And everybody ignores the state. Everybody ignores the county. Everybody ignores the city. Everybody ignores their their block. Because it's all about Washington. Washington is the be-all, end-all. But you know, on a daily basis, Washington does not affect your life. Certainly at the margins, Washington affects your life with health care or, you know, under Donald Trump, you Democrats have more take-home pay. Bet you're not giving it back to Washington. You're happy for the take-home pay Donald Trump gave you. But it doesn't affect you overwhelmingly. Washington doesn't affect you overwhelmingly. But your city council does, and your school board does, and your county commission does, and your highway department does, and your economic development authority does, and your industrial authority does, and your state legislature does, and your state bureaucrats do. But you're focused on Washington. And so now... Assuming Sanders is the nominee, and you know, Sanders could be stopped. If we're fair, Sanders can be stopped. Sanders, there, there is a ways to go. Only a third of the delegates are at stake. But the problem is that Bernie is building up such a lead, and there are no winner-take-all states in the Democrats. So anytime he gets close, he's going to keep picking up more votes. And as he keeps picking up more votes, that's going to put him in a commanding position to say, it's mine. It's my party now. And, and they won't, at some point soon, they won't be able to stop him. By the end of March, he'll be the nominee if they haven't found a way to scuttle. If others don't drop out and there's no reason for any of them to drop out, Sanders will be the nominee and a whole lot of people who hate him are going to go vote for him because they hate Donald Trump more. And they will hate him while he's in office for four years and they'll pretend to like him. That's the thing with Donald Trump. I know a lot of Republicans who routinely want to hump the president's leg and they can't stand him and they're embarrassed by it and they feel like they got to bathe, but they can't say anything in public because they don't really like him but they need access to him. And that's sad. That's a sad way to live that someone can't be honest. I get blown up regularly by people for saying there's something about the president I don't like. I don't like his character. He's done something bad. I wish he wouldn't do this. And people blow me up all the time. But you know what? I sleep well at night. I sleep well at night knowing I'm going to go vote for this man in November. There are things about him I don't care for, but there are a lot of policies of his that I do. And I would rather him than the other side. And just because you don't like the way he tweets, I don't like the way he tweets. But the Democrats don't tweet and you think, oh, well, they're nicer people because they're not mean tweeting like Donald Trump. No, they support the killing of kids and communism. That's not a nice person. Individually, they can be a pleasant person, a nice person. You can get along with them. But the culture of death in the Democratic Party right now, not really a good thing. The support for socialist communist policies by Bernie Sanders and the like on the Democratic side, not a good thing. But there will be a lot of Democrats who hate it, who actually do like the free market somewhat. 
and they'll go vote for him because they hate the president. They have become philosophically opposed not to the president's uh, policies. His policies are not actually outside the mainstream. They are opposed to the president because they're opposed to the president. They thought he shouldn't have won. They have fundamentally, by faith, believed that he is uh, the president because of Russia. They will dismiss the idea of Russia. Now, by the way, Bernie Sanders is out there now completely dismissing the idea uh, that the Russians have involved in themselves in the election. Bernie Sanders is out there completely dismissing the idea that the Russians are meddling to try to get him elected. I don't quite see it that way. I think if there is a candidate who loves Mr. Putin, who sees him as his best friend, that is the president of the United States, not me. I happen to believe that Putin is a dangerous autocrat. Unlike President Trump, I think he meddled very heavily in the 2016 election. And if by any chance Mr. Putin is watching this show, Mr. Putin, yank in a medal in American elections when I'm president of the United States. And second of all, second of all, there are differences of opinion within the intelligence community of the role that Russia is playing. But there's no question that in 2016, they meddled in our election. Uh, they meddled then with Donald Trump. They're not meddling. Pay no attention to the reports now. Yeah, it's amazing to watch the Democrats turn on that as well. That suddenly Russia is no longer a problem because they might be helping Bernie. There are a lot of people who are going to get to November and wonder what the hell has happened to this country. And they're going to check out of politics. And you know what? That's actually a really good thing. More people could afford to, more people could stand to, more people should check out of politics because they've made it all encompassing. Y'all, I do politics five hours a day on the radio. I love politics. I was a campaign manager. I was a campaign strategist. I was a campaign minion. I drove candidates around. I licked envelopes and in the back office. I put stamps on. I wrote press releases. I built coalitions. I ran campaigns. I strategized. I did polls. I did ads. I did mail. I loved it. I still love it. But it's a portion of my life. Most of my life is spent with my family and my friends and hanging out and enjoying each other's company and thinking about church and are we going to church and, and well, what's the lesson this week and I, why am I not reading my Bible? I got to get back into my Bible and, and I'm, I'm really bad about reading my Bible. It, 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 there's a whole other aspect of life out there besides politics and so many people have made politics so consuming for them and it's kind of nice to break them of that habit by having it all go so crazy. They're like, I got to do something else with my life. Yes, you should. Go grow a garden, grow a family, raise a family, seek the welfare of your city, get out of Washington politics, start focusing on your local community, whether it's Rome or Dalton or Athens or Jasper or, or Macon or Valdosta or, or Vidalia or Savannah or Statesboro or Douglas or Albany, Columbus, wherever, focus on your local community. Washington will still be there, but there's no reason to make it the be all end all of your life. The phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Hey, uh, by the way, those of you up in Rome, I love this idea. Uh, if there, there is uh, today, 
it is the night at the movies. It's a Rome tradition. It's raised uh, $275,000 for the Exchange Club Family Resource Center in Rome. Uh, it is today, February 25th. It is the 20th anniversary. Uh, the event starts at 6 p.m. at Seven Hills Building, located next to the DeSoto Theater. Guests can enjoy hors d'oeuvres, libations, courtesy of local restaurants at 715 You'll go across the street to the Rome City Auditorium and enjoy Casablanca on the big screen at 740. What a great movie. And there's a new projector system in the City Auditorium in Rome as well. Uh, tickets are $55 per person, $100 per couple, uh, $45 per order of 10 or more. You can go to exchangeclubfrc.org if you want information. Uh, I actually, this is a news story. It's at uh, wrganews.com, our, our uh, affiliate up in Rome, WRGA. It, that's a great idea. A night at the movies tonight. Uh, and again, it starts at uh, 7.15, the movie at 7.45, and it's Casablanca on the big screen at the Rome City Auditorium. Worth doing, great fundraiser, great opportunity uh, to help the prevention of child abuse in the uh, Floyd County area. So head up there. Again, the phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. One more housekeeping note for you. Uh, what? I guess it's next week on the 4th. Uh, what? Yep, the 4th. I will be in Athens on the 4th. Uh, I will be talking to the college Republicans at the University of Georgia uh, the on um, March 4th at 6.30 p.m. Oh, by the way, if anybody at uh, WGAU is listening, I may need to come by and do my evening show from your studio. <laughs> Note to WGAU, I, I, I may need to on the 4th uh, do my evening show at your studio as I will be talking to the college Republicans at 6.30 in Athens. And then I'm going up to Clarksville, I guess, in a couple months as well. Around the state, when we come back, we will move on to Georgia Matters and the President in India. I admit I'm coming back on air and had actually swung my microphone away from me and like, oh, where's my microphone? Ah, it's swung around on the other side of the desk. <laughs> if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You know, in the last hour or two, we've been dealing with the coal ash issue uh, and the uh, state Senate has passed legislation today that would prohibit uh, importation of coal ash from other states. There's other legislation that has been passed by the state Senate, uh, Senate Bill 367. It is backed by Governor Kemp and the state school superintendent, Richard Wood, and the Georgia Teachers, uh, Georgia Education Association, or Association of Georgia, whatever it is. Uh, and it, it would reduce the number of mandatory tests in public schools. Uh, it is headed to a vote of the full Senate. Uh, P.K. Martin, state senator, who is the chairman of the Senate Education Youth Committee, uh, sponsored the bill. He says overwhelmingly over and over and over, we keep hearing that standardized, high-stakes standardized testing continues to be a problem and it's just too much. Uh, teachers, organizations, school boards, school administrators all spoke in favor of it. Even the Department of Juvenile Justice supported the legislation. The state agency runs its own schools for, are we allowed to say juvenile delinquents still? Uh, and they run their own schools and they said 20 hours of classroom time is consumed just for preparation of the tests, let alone the testing. The legislation targets high school mandatory tests. There are eight. There are two in math, English, science, and social studies. 
The bill would reduce it to one test per topic. It eliminates the social studies test in fifth grade. States must comply with the federal mandate to test in 17 subjects in various grades. However, Georgia requires seven more tests than that. Uh, Should it become law, we will drop to 19 tests with two extra for social studies in eighth grade and in high school. The eighth grade exam is for Georgia history. There are two extra high school social studies tests for U.S. history and economics. But the legislation would eliminate one of them requiring the Georgia Board of Education to choose which. Oh, you know they're going to scrap the economics one, which... For American history, given the the garbage the New York Times is putting out, maybe we need the American history one, though. Now, um, there is some concern because the tests are used to hold teachers and schools accountable and tell parents how their kids are performing. And research suggests that the rigor of teacher grading varies from school to school and statewide tests provide a uniform measure. Uh, They're called the Georgia Milestones. Uh, Georgia parents are going to know less about their kids. And, but I got to tell you, I think it's a good thing. Here, here's the thing. Just l- let me let me step back for a moment. I grew up in Dubai. Did not grow up in this country. I went to an amazing school. And, you know, my parents were actually really hands-off. They were not highly involved in school. My dad worked seven days offshore and seven days onshore, and he coached basketball some. Uh, and, and that's not saying my parents weren't involved, but it's not like they were at school every day. I know some people whose their parents were at school every day. Mine weren't. But I was a diligent student, as were my sisters. Uh, and... We had a standardized test, and it was the Stanford Achievement Test. It's now the California Achievement Test, uh, the Iowa Standards Test I think some schools take. And you know the purpose of that test was to determine uh, where I was in relation to everyone else, and then horror of horrors, something American schools in the United States of America do not do, is they would take that test and they would say, look at this. He's not doing well in math. Let's put him in a smaller math class uh, with a teacher who's going to get him up to speed. You in our school would typically have two to three math classes, even though we were a really small school. I mean, my graduating class in ninth grade, our school only went up to ninth grade in Dubai, uh, and then you went to boarding school. I think there were 28 of us. And so we ultimately would have uh, in, in, upper middle at junior high school, we would have two math classes and in elementary school, there would be three small classes of kids, about 10 kids in each class. And except for math and for reading. And what would happen is they would take the standardized tests and they would say, okay, all of the kids who are doing badly in math, let's put them in a class together. The kids who are on average, Let's put them in a larger class size. And then the handful, the the four or five kids who are really excelling at math, let's keep them accelerating and put them in a class. And so the very small group of kids who weren't doing well had a great teacher. I was in them one year. And that teacher really could work with us and get us up to speed. So in the next year, we could move up. Our test scores would improve, and suddenly we're back in the median average class. And and ultimately, several of us would move on to the higher end class. 
And the same with reading comprehension. I remember one year, and in fact, it was second grade. Uh, we, we moved over there after kindergarten. I'm, I'm starting first grade. I'm into second grade, and I, I was a terrible reader. I hated to read when I was a little kid. I hated to read. And uh, my reading comprehension and vocabulary were off, and they would make me go to a classroom, and there were just six of us in the classroom. And, you know, I was there for a year and I had a British teacher who was fantastic and uh, she she got us up to speed. And I not only moved into the the regular class, but ultimately moved into the advanced class. And by my ninth grade class year, I was uh, I was in the higher end math class and I was in the higher end reading corporate reading class, English class, because they had used the test as a benchmark for where I was and arranged the classes for kids accordingly. And in this country, in this day and age, you are not supposed to do that. It is verboten. You do not do that. You do not put all the, the slow learners together and all the advanced learners together. You just, you're not supposed to do that. And I can't tell you the number of time I've talked to teachers like this. It's not good that we don't do this anymore. You're not supposed to track the kids that way. And, and for the life of me, it just didn't make sense. If you've got a handful of kids in a class and you know the kids are being are, are just awful at math, put that handful of kids together in a small class with a good teacher to get them up to speed. A smaller class, you make the middle-sized class the largest one, where the, all the kids who are average are there together. You make the kids who are ad, actually advanced a small class and the kids who are actually not doing well a small class and get the small class kids up to speed and don't punish the ones who are advanced by putting them in the class with everyone else. Let them excel. You know, when I moved back to the United States uh, in 10th grade, for a while, we were going to a small private school in Wilkinson County, Mississippi, uh, Wilkinson County Christian Academy. And we were there for a little while. And then my parents decided it was it was 30 minute drive. They didn't want me uh, driving that gas prices had gotten high because of the Gulf War. A dollar twenty five was high at the time, believe it or not. And so they decided to send me off to public school. And I hated public school. I'm just I'm going to be honest with you. It was a miserable experience. Um, in fact, my school is having some sort of reunion, a high school reunion. I was like, I just, I, I had like three friends in high school. I, I, I ran the office. Um, and it's not that I, I was, I, I was never bullied I, and I got along well with everyone. I just, I didn't like it. Um, it was depressing to me. I had some really good teachers, but I was so far advanced from where everyone else in the school was that I actually wound up being the French teacher. Believe it or not, we had a, a little a little man from South Louisiana would drive up to teach French, and occasionally he would not show up, and he would leave lessons, and I would do that because I had had five years of French. It was bizarre. Uh, and um, in science, uh, my, my teacher would literally uh, take the test from me and tell me to go in the back and start planning the experiment for him because I had had chemistry and physics and biology in seventh, eighth, and ninth grade. I was so far advanced from everyone. And in, in math, I had never had geometry and I moved into the school. I had gone to the, the private Christian school for a semester and then moved in the second semester to the uh, into 10th grade math, and it was geometry. And the teacher, Miss Mim, she was a great teacher, and she put me at a table to myself in the back of the room and said, teach yourself. She had the, an entire classroom. She had 20 kids in this class, and she put me at a back table. And by the end of the semester, I was already on to trigonometry. And I, by the way, I love geometry and trigonometry, two of my favorite subjects in school. But I, I did it all self-taught, self-learning in the back of the room. And I will never forget my very first encounter in public school. I was in, um, what was her name? Uh, 
Linda French, I think, yeah, Miss French's class. And there was a kid in the class, my very first day in this classroom, I was completely discombobulated, had never seen anything like this. It was an awful situation. There was a horrible teacher who taught uh, civics and free enterprise. She was absolutely horrible. And I left there and I went into this English class and there was this, uh, no, Linda Priest, that's her name, Linda Priest. And there, there was a kid in there and he didn't know what the word liberty was. And I was horrified. He had no idea. He had never heard the word liberty before. And this is 10th grade. Like, this is insane. What have my parents done to me? In a public school in rural Louisiana. And I graduated from there. And I did fine. And and I had a handful of really good friends. I got along with everyone in the class. I had a handful of really good friends. I keep in touch with, with a couple of them. Uh, but I wound up my 11th and 12th grade year. I am not kidding you. I went to English and I went to science. And I went to math. And otherwise, I sat in the front office and helped run the school. And, and that is no exaggeration. You wanted to come into school late, you had to come through me. You want to leave early, I was the one who took care of it. Uh, I, I rounded up the attendance records. I ran the computers for the school. I mean, it was it was fantastic. I loved it. I was in charge. It was a total power play on my part. But I was shocked to come back to this country and realize uh, that you, you didn't do standardized tests. Now, in Louisiana, you had the LEAP test, which is kind of like the Georgia Standards test. It's the Louisiana Education something, something. Um, and, and I was just shocked that testing was not used to place students in the next year. I mean, I, that was an eye-opening experience even back then. I, I distinctly remember in 11th grade having this realization that they're not doing this. I ultimately tested into the gifted program, and they, they didn't want to put me in the gifted program. You will not be surprised I was in the gifted program. Yep, I was, total nerd. Um, but they didn't want to put me in there because I had not been there for multiple years, they, and they didn't like the person who was in charge of it, didn't like the idea of putting me in the gifted program in my senior year in, in high school after refusing to put me in it in my 11th grade year, but they ultimately had no choice. They put me in it and actually helped me get a good college scholarship to Mercer and to Duke. Uh, and, but they, it, it was just, it was an eye-opening experience. American education outside this country and American schools outside this country is so much better than American education in public schools. But can I be really honest with you here towards the end of this random winding monologue that some of you probably are scratching your head about? Parents ultimately matter. You know, my parents were very hands-off not very involved. I remember the fair, there were very few times when I was in high school, my parents would go to school. There would be a meeting or some such, and they would have to go, but otherwise they weren't other than parent teacher conferences, but I was a good student and I didn't really need them involved, but we are dealing with situations in this country with the collapse of families. And I, I actually resent like hell on behalf of teachers that a lot of teachers are measured based on standardized tests when uh, there are a lot of kids who are going to fail the test because they woke up hungry that morning because their mom has had to go to work. Their dad's not there and they got to take care of the other kids. And we're going to tell the teachers uh, that you suck because the kids are failing the test uh, when the kids are failing life because their parents are failing life because the family's collapsing and it's not any of their fault. It's just the nature of the world we live in. We live in a fallen world and families are collapsing and we're going to tell teachers that they're bad because the kids aren't learning, but the kids aren't learning because they're in a broken home and they're starving when they come to school. That's not fair to our teachers. Is it? It's not just the pay raise and the lack of pay that keep teachers and keep people from wanting to be teachers. It's also the collapse of society and suddenly teachers are no longer teaching. They have a passion to teach. They want to be with kids. You get these great teachers. You see, so they make movies about these teachers who elevate the souls of 
kids for broken homes. Not every teacher is going to do that, but there are still good teachers, and they can't do it because the homes collapsed and it's the teacher's fault when they're just a freaking babysitter these days. And nobody wants to blame the parents. Nobody wants to say, hey, maybe you should have done a better job. No, Nobody wants to do that, and I get it. But why do we want to blame the teachers for the broken home and the collapsed family and the kid who can't read and write because the parents don't do it with them? They're in school for a few hours a day and then they're home the rest of the time and they're home during the summer and somehow it's the teacher's fault. I got a real problem with our society saying, you know, and there are bad teachers. Let's let's be honest. I had a really bad teacher. I remember when I was in 10th grade, I moved back to the States. There was this woman. Her name was Miss Sims. And Miss Sims would walk down the hall perfectly fine until she knew someone was coming. And then she would hunch over and grab her back as if she was in excruciating pain because she had a worker's cop claim. Everybody knew it. It was the running joke. You could see her on the security cameras of the school walking just fine until someone showed up. There's, oh, my back. And she taught free enterprise and civics. And she was terrible at free enterprise and civics. You could have done a better job just playing schoolhouse rock videos than her. It was a garbage class and she was a terrible teacher. And I resented her. To this day, I resent her. I actually got up and left that class more than once. And she didn't care if you were in the class or not. I'd go sit in the office and study. I'd make straight A's in the class and never go to class. I would skip the class and she wouldn't even take attendance. She was a horrible teacher. And everybody knew it. And she deserved to be fired, and they couldn't fire her because she had the workers' comp case, and she would sue them if they did. And that's why she had the workers' comp case. There are terrible teachers in schools. There are really awful teachers, and we should make it really easy to fire bad teachers. And the kids in school know who the bad teachers are. Talk to the kids. Talk to them. Talk to your kids. Who are the bad teachers? They'll tell you who the bad teachers are. But using the the standardized test benchmark to say, oh, this teacher's bad because she's got 15 kids in there. All of them are from broken homes and they come to school starving and can't focus on the standardized test and it's the teacher's fault. I have a real problem with that and you should too. And that's the benchmark for hiring and firing teachers these days is really, really, really unfortunate. It is Eric Erickson here. So the president is in India. He had a very funny moment uh, where he... um, where he said that he he had a press conference and he wasn't going to say anything controversial because he didn't want to distract from his good meeting. Uh, everyone had a good laugh out of it. What I find fascinating is that uh, he has this meeting in India. He, he's got this. It's it's a successful visit in India, and the press is fixated on Russia and the Russia narrative. They they don't want to ask him about his meeting in India. Um, it's just, it's, it's kind of sad that the media is, is frustrating is, is they're, they're willing to avoid asking the president relevant questions about what he's doing. And I'm, I'm stammering because I'm trying to pull up this clip and just give you a sense of this. Listen, I've seen papers on it. People cannot believe that she said it. Yeah, please go ahead. Thank you, Mr. President. The intelligence community believes that Russia is trying to meddle in the 2020 election. Do you agree with their assessment? And what is your message to Vladimir Putin about potentially interfering regardless of the candidate they support? Well, you know, what I'm reading, and again, I'm over here for the last number of days, but they went to uh, see uh, Bernie, and they told Bernie about something having to do with they want Bernie to win. They did not tell me intelligence never told me and we have a couple of people here that would know very well they never told me anything about that and it was sort of a strange thing that they went to bernie and now i find out if i believe what i read in 
some of your documents and some of your papers that it's a highly it was highly exaggerated and frankly i think it's uh, disgraceful and i think it was leaks from the intelligence committee house house version and i think that they leaked it i think probably Schiff leaked it but people within that Schiff leaked it in my opinion and he shouldn't be leaking things like that that's a terrible thing to do but basically they would like to see Bernie is uh, probably winning and looks like he's winning and he's got a head of steam and they maybe don't want him for obvious reasons so they don't want him so they put out a thing that rushes back in him this is what they do uh, I've gone through it for a long time I get it I get the game better than anybody and uh, that's the way it is the point of me playing this clip here yeah okay the, the president says some interesting stuff here but it's he's in India and that's the second question the president got He's in India concluding a successful trade trip, and the media is just obsessed with Russia stuff. Russia, 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 Russia. And now the, the, you know, the Democrats are changing the talking point. For the longest time, it had been that the Democrats stole it for Russia. They're stealing it for the president. The, the Russians are stealing it. And what actually is happening actually, it's it's the Russians are just sowing chaos. The Russians want the chaos. The Russians want to to divide the country, and that's what they're doing. And the media is playing into their hands. Here goes the president of the United States has a successful trade trip, and the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming in, and the Russians they they, they want to help the president. They got the story wrong. They misrepresented it, and they're obsessed with it, and they can't get the story right. It's sad. It's expected, and. It's going to make it very, very funny uh, in November if Bernie Sanders is the nominee to see the media discredit themselves by running away from a story they've advanced for four years against the president of the United States. Oh, well. By the way, happy Mardi Gras, a native of Louisiana. Happy Mardi Gras to you guys. I'll talk to you tomorrow.